Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser and this is The Stick Up. Vulcan to Kilmaz took a life of trauma and turned it into peace after an incredible awakening in jail with someone he never expected to meet there. Welcome to the stick up, Vulcan to Kilmaz. Hey man, thanks for having me on here. So that's a pleasure having you on here. Look, I noticed you on um, TikTok a, you know, a month or so ago and I, I was really, really impressed by just your passion, mate, about and and, and, and a really what resonated really well with me was just uh, how much you were really enjoying life and how much you were embracing life. And I thought, man, I've got to meet this guy and... Um, so I commented a little bit about your uh, some of your stuff, and you know, and and, and like you, we become mutual friends, and then we, man, I was just, I was pumped, I was pumped to talk to you because your your energy is contagious. It's beautiful. Thank you, bro. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So, um, for me, there was a um, there was I was a bit of a I was stuck in a bit of a rut. See, and um, after everything that I've been through in my life, and and come to where I'm at, I was I was like at a crossroads, and I was really a bit. Um, confused of where to go from there, you know, and um, I made a big move. Uh, I moved from the Gold Coast to Sydney um, just to just to leave behind some um, some bad memories and stuff like that, and a few um, peers that I no longer needed in my life, and um, some triggers and stuff for me. You know, it was a bit hard, but I left it all behind, and um, and I started on with this TikTok thing, and um, I just started um, trying to portray some sort of a um, positive image, you know, um, and the reaction that I got from it was um, was massive, you know, and phenomenal. Yeah, it was huge, and and so when you approached me, I just I approached you as if I didn't know anything about you at the time, and and I just approached you as if I was to approach anyone else that was um, reaching out to me, and 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 it just so happened to land me in this seat. <laughs> yeah, well, let's go back and start where it all started. Where were you born? I was born in Melbourne. Yeah, um, yeah, I was born in uh, Mooney Ponds. Grew up in uh, Broadmeadows. Um, Broadmeadows is the equivalent to the Mount Druitt of Melbourne, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit Mount Druitt, Logan of Brisbane. Yeah, yeah. It's like the bit of the rough area there. Yeah. Yeah. How was? What was your upbringing like? Um, bro. So the normal child's upbringing is that they have like a neighbourhood and they make their neighbourhood friends and they grow old and they and they get to know their friends and they go to prom and all that sort of stuff. Well, see, for me, it was more of. Um, Moving out every three months, um, a lot of domestic violence in my in in my upbringing, um, and there was a lot of um, time spent growing up in women's shelters. Yeah, how was that, mate? How was that? It was, you know, it was as a, as a child, you don't really, um, it doesn't really affect you as much as it would as an adult because I never had any time to reflect and to see how like um, how traumatic that 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 little part of my life was. I was just a kid, you know. As long as I had like my toy car and and whatever I needed for school and stuff, and I was I was all right with it until until it really um, sank in when I got off the drugs and that. And I spent a lot of time in, um, in in isolation. I had a lot of time to resonate and think about my past. And um, I was like, wow, this this these are all like little things that really sculpted who I became, you know. Yeah. So that those early years when you were witnesses the domestic violence and that was actually moulding you, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was moulding me and teaching me um, what not to do in life. 
Yeah. How did you, you cope with the domestic violence within the home? What did you do to sort of cope with it? <clears throat> so I, I really didn't... I knew that it was happening and there was a lot of things going on with me at the time. Like I, I was, I could never sleep at a friend's house, um, especially knowing that my mum could potentially be at risk of being hurt or something and, and I wasn't going to be there to, um, you know, to help her or to look after her, you know. And so I, um, I couldn't sleep anywhere, at, you know, but at the same time I didn't want to be home, you know. I was always out in the streets till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning as, as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old child, you know, getting drunk and riding my skateboard with my mates and that. And when it was time... For people, everyone going home, I'd call my mum. My mum would come pick me up from my mate's house sometimes three o'clock in the morning, you know, on a Wednesday Wednesday morning instead of getting ready to go to school, you know, I was, um, yeah. What was your relationship like with your mum? I felt like, okay, so there were so many kids in our relationship and uh, in my in my family and but all to my dad's side and, and with my mum's side, there's only two of us, so me and my little sister and, and, and I felt like I'm the man of the house at my mum's place and so I took the role on to be like my mum's guardian or her protector, you know. And um, Did you I think did, you grew up a bit? Do you think you had to grow up fast? Oh, absolutely, you know. Um, I was put in situations where my mum's, um, you know, boyfriends were drunk and, and trying to abuse my mum and as a 13-year-old child, I'm wrestling 45-year-old men that are drunk on the floor in my mum's kitchen, you know, mm. to stop her, you know, and, like, these are just some of the things that um, that a 13-year-old child shouldn't have to go through, you know. Mm. As a child, when did you, your, your religion sort of come into play? For me... I knew my religion was always meant to be in our lives and that we were, I was born Muslim and stuff. And um, so it just... One day my dad went to a funeral and what had happened was he wasn't religious at the time. He he seen his name on a gravestone and he'd just come home one day and completely changed. Like he... From the very next day, he's like, nah, we're praying five times a day and you're going to learn this, you've got to learn that and this is how we're going to live our lives from now on. And I'm like, whoa, like what's going on here? You know, we've I've lived my life up until the age of... 15 years old and and now you want to try and implement religion onto me and all of a sudden I've got to be praying five times a day and all that sort of stuff so it was a bit of a um, an aggressive way to put it on me but um, yeah today uh, I'm glad it, I'm glad he did put it on me like that because today um, my religion did get me through a lot of my um, my time in, in custody and stuff like that yeah mate you um you know th- by the age of 13 you're out in the streets drinking getting into trouble what age did you start to get in trouble with the law so my first offence was um, unlawful wounding at the age of fourteen. It was, was in that the, in Victoria? No, that was in um, on the Gold Coast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was charged with unlawful wounding, and that was the first time that I realised that I was no longer in my mum's or my dad's care anymore, and I was now belong I now belong to the government. Did you end up locked up over it? Yeah, yeah. BYDC. Yeah, yeah, I went to Brisbane Youth Detention Centre. Yeah. Yeah. Were you a minority when you got to BYDC? Or? <clears throat> Absolutely, I was a minority. I was a minority since 2001, since I was 11 years old. Yeah. And um, in regards to, um, like, my condolences and stuff, and with all due respect in, in regards to September 11 and stuff like that, because... You copped a bit of racism, oh, are Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I, I grew up in the generation of that, see, so the first ever, you know, name-calling and being called terrorists and all this sort of stuff... I was, like, pretty much the first kids to cop that sort of racial slurs, you know? How did that make you feel as a kid? It made me feel that I didn't belong in certain areas or I didn't belong in certain uh, classrooms and stuff like that, and it made me um, kind of really think back and say, well, where do I belong? And and then I analysed the situation. I said, oh, well, I'm a Middle Eastern or I'm, I'm, I'm a, this type of a person and, and I'm a Muslim, so... 
I'm going to go hang out with these types of people because they are just like me, you know. And The Gold Coast is a very Anglo-Saxon sort of place. It would have been hard to find that, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, there is a very tight-knit community of us boys that are there, you know, and yeah. everybody knows everyone, who, like all the Muslim brothers and that. Mm-hmm. We all know each other. Yeah, and, and did you did you find a brotherhood amongst all of that? Yeah, so Islam is basically a brotherhood, you know. It's like, it's just family. It's kind of like our religion is makes us, we all come from God and that, so we look at each other like we are brothers and sisters, you know, with everybody. You know, or like from my own experience, I've found a, a lot of uh, the blokes I've seen, uh, in in particular in prison that converted, just seem to find an overwhelming sense of peace in Islam. Yeah, you know what I mean? I absolutely. Just, I've seen friends of mine that were just so twisted and everything like that and find so much peace in it. And I'll be quite honest, you know, it's, it's always appealed to me. I've always looked at it and said, there's something really peaceful about that religion. I mean, how easy for me would it be to just be a Christian? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Jesus died for my sins and then I wouldn't have to do nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Islam, if you ask me, is pretty much the hardest, like, the one that's really technical, you know? And um, So it makes more sense to me. So I just go with what makes sense and yeah. that just seems You feel to it in your heart. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like anything. So going to BYDC, did you come across some racism and that in it? It caused you to get in fights and that sort of stuff? Um, not really. What happened in there was um, there was the Murray lads, you know, and then there was the white guys and the Islanders. They were, they were, yeah, so and but then so yeah, the Islanders and then the white guys, and then there was the in between guys like me, where I'm not white and I'm not black, but I'm in between. So I kind of I was kind of friends with all so all, all the groups of people there. And okay, so end up how long did you end up doing there? Um, so I did six months. Um, got out. Mum, I got out on bail. Mum ended up taking me overseas um, whilst on bail. So she took me to Turkey. Intention was to live there forever. Um, man, I was just a, a kid at the time. You know, I was turning, I was turning sixteen at the time, and and I went overseas for six months, uh, for eight months, and then um, and I came back when I was close to seventeen. So when did the um, drug use start for you? At that time, I was getting into my weed a lot, you know, that was about it at that time. So it was the weed, and um, I did find a way to get my pot in in, in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, yeah, I ended up getting it and that, and mum's like, what's going on here, you know, send me back. So she sent me back home, and um, once I got home, I started training with my um, my big brother. He was in Sydney at the time. What and sort of training were you doing? I was doing martial arts. So I was doing um, Muay Thai. Yeah. Yeah. So my brother he fight. He used to fight worldwide, like all over the place and yeah. stuff. And um, so I was training with him, and and I had a few amateur fights with him down here. And then he's like, "Look, man, um, you're on the run from the cops." you um, want to expand this fighting stuff and you, you seem like you're getting into it and you like it and stuff. So what I need you to do is I need you to go back to Queensland and hand yourself into the cops and then um, and then once you get all that court stuff sorted out, come back and, and we'll, we'll move forward with the fighting stuff. So so you went back up there, did you hand yourself in? Yeah, so I handed myself in at 5am. Um, I must, My dad um, was, was smart like that. I handed myself in at 5am. Um, my dad approached the solicitor we got um some we got we got a good solicitor and that and then that day my dad put me out i put ten thousand dollar bail bail up for me and i got out on bail again yeah. that day all right so what was the final outcome with that sentence the final outcome of that sentence was five years probation i really want to get to when you started smoking methamphetamine okay yeah so whilst living um with my father on a ten thousand dollar bail um i was on a curfew and i couldn't do much at all so that's where it all stemmed from was just boredom and stuff like that and i was getting into making music and stuff and that's was my pa- rap music? Yeah, yeah yeah that's my passion now and that's what I, I love to do that as well in my free times you know and um so from there started using meth as like a recreational thing and 
and then it just it, it just blew out of um, proportion. It just it just exploded out of nowhere, and um, I, I beat the I beat the court right, so I got off bail, and then. And then what happened was I met my the mother of my kids. You know, I was I was just turning 18 years old, and she's she'd been my first ever girlfriend. So um, within three months of being with her, she told me she was pregnant. And oh, mate, how can I tell my father that I've gotten this Aussie girl pregnant and we're not even married? I'm 18 years old, man, and I, and I can't go home and like show this pregnant girl to my dad and be like, oh, by the way, she's pregnant and that's my girlfriend. You know, mm. well once he found out. He's like, get to the mosque and get married now. So I had no choice but to get married to her. I, we ended up... So there was a, a part in my life where I was living in my dad's shed and she's seven months pregnant. She were not allowed to sleep under the same roof together, so we'd be kicking back in my room in the in the shed and until around 9, uh, 9 p.m. And then when the my dad would come down around 9 p.m., he was like, right, get out, you lot, you know, and we'll, we'll jump in the car literally drive out his driveway park in front of his house and fall asleep in her car at the front of his house because you because you that the, the religious the, beliefs yeah. yeah so yeah and we'd have to um do that like every single night you know close to before she gave birth to my daughter and that's when i started um i was like you know what i'm gonna do something here so i got on and, and i started flicking a bit of gear you know mm. i started moving it and stuff and making some started money selling some ice yeah yeah so i started selling it and and back then it wasn't ice you know there, back then it was ketone gear so it was like the most shittest stuff yeah like, speed. Yeah, oh, yeah yeah and it was yeah it was just a speed that turned into rock that had like you know a lot of cut in it and it was mm. just really really damaging a lot of people back then so yeah. it started off with that and um and i did start seeing a bit of money coming in and that you know and and i did get my own place and stuff so the baby was coming along. Were you able to get into the house and live together by the time the baby had come? Um, it was very, very um, close. It was a very close call. Um, by the by, the time the baby came, I was in my own place. Um, I, I bit off more than I could chew at the time. The rent was um, for me a bit pricey and that, but I just had to get in, you know. And and I got in. I set the house up and stuff. And and then yeah, we had the baby, and the baby was. What was your dad's opinion of it all? Did he embrace it or? Nah. Well, my my dad's opinion was that um, if 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 that baby gets born before we get married, that it's going to be a cursed child and this and that, and he's not going to touch my kid and that. Like, so how did that make you feel, mate? Yeah, it felt it felt unfair, man. Um, you know, after after everything that my dad put us through, you know, like how dare he say that? You know, like it just it was it was unfair. I felt I felt like it was unfair to, for him to say that. You'd experienced a fair bit of trauma in your life yourself, you know. You'd you'd experienced extreme bullying by people putting you on the terrorist after nine eleven. Um, by the sounds of things, your dad sort of, you know, you know, not accepting and that that must have been tough. Yeah. That must have been so tough on you, man. Yeah, and yeah, it's Do tough. Do you think it played a part in your drug use? Absolutely. Absolutely, I think it did. Um now that I can look back at it and I can actually see all the little moments um, that, that led to where I ended up, you know, and um but I just thought it was normal, you know, like, I just thought that was normal growing up like that. You know, a lot of drug addicts and people like, I, I know for myself, I normalised a lot of un, uh, abnormal stuff. My, I was on a visit and my mum seen Ivan Malat sitting on a visit and, I, and she said, that's Ivan Malat and I said, do you want to introduce him to her? And she, I just thought it was normal. And uh, my mum was going, no, that's the devil, I don't want to talk to him. It's funny how addicts have a tendency or people or tr- people who suffered extreme trauma have a have a, a, a part of the coping thing is we just normalise things. That, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mate, look, what was happening in the house? You've got a brand new baby, you're dealing. How much were you using? 
Um, bro, to be completely honest, man, I, um, I was I was using minimal because I couldn't barely afford it. So I was basically getting a point or two. And back then, the gear was better than it is now, so it was lasting a little bit longer. But I would, like, get a point or two and I would separate it into bags so then I could have, you know, and I could, like, medicate myself kind of thing and I could have some for morning and have some, for, you know, and make sure that I never ran out kind of thing, you know. You used the word medicated. Was that your you, – you just seen it that way? You are self-medicating? Yeah, I did, absolutely. And what was that for? It was because um, I never felt the the happiness really that I felt once I used drugs. You know, it, it numbed everything out of my past and it made me not really care so much about it, you know? Yeah. That's, man, I, I know it because I, I did it well. I've done it to numb my trauma. I've done it, done it to, not, uh, you know, to numb things that I didn't want to feel. And um, So, yeah, I, I get it. Um, and, and then, like, sort of the, the dealing escalated. Um, nah, the dealing um, got knocked on the head, man, and the crime started then. Yeah, what yeah. sort of crime? So just petty crime, you know, doing um, bergs and stuff like that, and just, oh, it was a bit, yeah. Man, that led you to jail? Because I was on five years probation, see. I had a house full of goodies and that, and because um, my two kids aren't too far apart, um, mm. so just like a, not not long after my first kid she was pregnant with the second one and the um arguments are getting crazy there's no money there's no rent the being, arguments between you and your between partner. me and my partner yeah it's getting really toxic there's no money the rent's not being paid constant evictions out of every house after within within three months you know and and to have police knock on my door and be like the landlord has gone to the court behind your back and they've ordered you to leave and you've got to leave today you've been given two weeks and I said well where's my two weeks they're like it was given to you two weeks ago and I didn't even check my emails yeah. so I got to a point where we're arguing a lot I'm being accused of doing um, uh, or cheating on her and that because I'm out trying to trying to earn money I'm out doing earns and, and doing criminal activities and trying to earn money to pay rent because I was that selfish that I put my drug addiction uh, first before food and um, before rent and before bills you know and and instead of always going home to have a fight with her, I would just bring her along with me. So here I am with a with an under one year old in the backseat of my car, a pregnant missus in the passenger seat, and I'm cruising around doing urns, like doing bergs with that in my car. Crazy. Now, when did you first encounter an adult prison? The first time I encountered an adult prison was 2013. So listen to this, this is what just baffles me. I was a kid when I did my first crime, you know, of that unlawful wounding. I ended up getting sentenced at the age of 17 and I ended up getting um, five years probation, see? So 17, that's 22 years old, right? So just before my five years probation finished, they raided my house and pinched me with some um, tainted property and then what, what parole... The pro- mm, parole. So four and a half years later... Four and a half years later, they breached my parole and the breach was a resentencing on the same offence as an adult now. Mm. So they resentenced me as an adult for the same offence that I did as a 14-year-old kid, right? So this is being burdened, carried on me since 14 years old. And then I got sentenced as an adult in 2013 and they give me two uh, two years parole. I know nothing about parole. I'm a drug addict. I was a drug addict. I didn't get any warnings to know that if you piss dirty back then that you're going straight to jail mm. immediately, you know. So I went into parole and, and, of course, I gave him my urine sample. I wasn't smart enough to do any sneaky business and, and, and you know, and, and bodge it up or whatever. But I gave him my urine because I thought, honestly, they're going to see that. It's going to be dirty and they're going to offer me help or something like that. Yeah. But really, they, they took me away from my, my ex-wife and, and my two kids. So they locked you up. They, they breached you. Oh, it breached me immediately after my first so urine. Was it a 28-day breach or? It was, it was meant to be. But apparently never it is. never is in yeah. Queensland. Queensland, I have a policy: is 
if you uh, if you have if you give them a positive urine for drugs, it's meant to be a twenty eight day breach. But it's very rarely that it, you stay. It's normally up to three. You know, in cases up to six months. Mm. So that's what happened. I, I, How long did you stay in on a breach? I did three and a half months that time, and um, I got out, and it wasn't even two weeks till went, until I went back in another dirty. Mm. Yeah, so, so I went, you give them another dirty urine. Yeah, I give them another dirty urine. You just had no thoughts of giving up using or anything. It wasn't a deterrent. I did, man. Like the thoughts were there, but um, I just always thought that I could get away with it. You know. We all think we can outsmart the system, don't yeah. we? And the jails are full of people who thought they can outsmart the Absolutely, system. Yeah. You know, I come across so many people in prison that thought they were outsmarting the system, and you tell them, "So, what are you doing sitting here? Have you outsmarted them?" Yeah. And no one's got the answer. But um, all right. So you get out. Mate, what, what was like you? I, I think you went back for a couple of years, didn't you? Yeah, I got evicted for the last time, and I was like, you know what? Fuck this, man. My kids are getting too old. Um, they're starting to know what's going on. So I, I took my family away from the Gold Coast, and I, and I moved to Bundaberg. Mm. And um, and in Bundaberg, I started picking cherry tomatoes. Mm. Um, I was earning my, my first paycheck came in. I think it was like thirty seven dollars, and I took it home, and and she nearly bit my head off. You know, mm. she's like, "What is this? You've been gone all week for this. You know, every day I don't see you for twelve hours, and you." You come home and bring home that is because oh, I was a shit picker man I don't know how to pick tomatoes but I'm new anyways my, my boss seen it and that and he um he goes all right we're going to put you on 50 bucks a day you're going to be a supervisor walking in and out of the roads and suss it all out what happened was I ended up becoming the farm manager I ended up bringing 50 of my own people to work for me and I was getting paid a dollar each head so now I'm on a hundred dollars a day and then these these people were asking me for accommodation see so so I was clearing twenty seven hundred dollars a week just from their rent money mm. and then this is when the obstacle started see like my ex was like you don't even need to work anymore the houses are paying for everything stop going to work you know I need some more I need some help at home but I was still selfish I didn't want to be at home you know I was um there was a lot going on for me and there was a lot of headache there and a lot of toxic like toxic behaviours going on. Relationship was yeah, falling apart. It was yeah. falling apart, man. And and I was getting attention actually from girls at the farm, like attention that I wasn't getting at home, mm. you know? And um, so she, she left me at that point. She went back to the Gold Coast. Mm. And what happened, man? What happened after that? She went back to her mum's and I said to her, I said, look, you go back to your mum's, I'll go back to my mum's. When I come back from Sydney, because I, I chased a backpacker chick to Sydney and I was seeing her for a bit. And I said, when I come back to Sydney, we'll start our relationship again from scratch. We'll go on dates. We'll do all the things that we never got to do as kids because we were just kids when we met each other, man. And there was a lot of things that we didn't do, you know, and I really wanted to do that, you know. So I was like, come on, let's give it a shot. We'll go on dates and we'll just we'll get into that, you know, that um, the honeymoon stage of a relationship that we never had, you know, because from the start of our relationship, she felt pregnant, you know. It was go, go, go from the start, you know, and... Um, Anyways, on my way back, she, no, she didn't fall, she didn't want it. She didn't want a nut, she didn't want a bar of it. So she was seeing, um, she was seeing other guys on the Gold Coast, and and I started becoming really obsessive. Mm. Really, I had, I realised that I, I never really loved her. Um, what it was was I had codependency issues. Mm. See, um, I felt comfortable. I loved the idea of her, but I, you know, and not really her herself. You know, it was just we just grew apart, and but. I was very vulnerable and and she was like, you can see your kids every single weekend, you know, you can have your kids on the weekend. So here I am, I'm a meth addict. Now, I was clean, by the way, in Bundaberg. Mm. I cleaned up. I was working. I cleaned up. So then, bang, that thing happened. She left with the kids and that and she's at her mum's and now I'm back on the Gold Coast where I don't want to be and I'm back on the ice. I've got my kids every single weekend for the first time of my life. I'm, I'm, I'm a single dad with, with, with two little naughty kids, you know, and it was a handful for me. There was one time that this is the moment where it really went wrong was 
and I'm so glad I get to get this out and get it off my chest. Man, I wanted to go clubbing, you know, like I, I, I missed out on my childhood, man. Like there was a point where I was like, she's going out every single weekend, she's dumping the kids on me and she's going out every weekend living her best life and here I am, I'm, I'm a fried unit and I've got my kids and, and, I don't, and I'm like juggling life and I'm like, I want to go out, I want to have some fun, you know. So I, I hired a babysitter. And I got an apartment, the, the babysitter came and I, and I said to the babysitter, I said, look, I'll be back before the kids wake up, okay? So uh, when I wake up, when they wake up, I'm take, I'll take them to SeaWorld tomorrow and I'll drop them home. So I went out that night, I come back four in the morning and, and she's just bailed out the door and she's like, all right, I'm going, thank you, see you. And she's left. And um, I found that a bit odd, but anyways, I, I, I got my kids and that and I, I dropped them home that next day after SeaWorld and... Um, on my way out of her driveway, she's texted me saying, you've never seen your kids again, you know, blah, 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 swearing at me and that carrying on. And I was like, why? You know, like, what's going on? I'm already depressed that I, I've lost her. And now she says I'm not allowed to ever see my kids again. This is the, like, I call it, she's, I call it um, the best of what was left, you know. Mm. She's, she's taking the best of what was left, you know, mm. from me. And, and this is where it started really getting, um, like, really, really affecting me mentally in that. So... Look, I don't know if I can talk about this, but there was a, an urn that went wrong with me and my mate, and he died in the incident, you know, mm. and, um, a robbery gone wrong, and he died, you know, and um, at that time, we were together for the whole three months that I was separated with my mm. ex, so me and my mate were together for the whole three months, and then he went off to do his, that urn, and, and I went off, and, and I scoped out my kid's school, and I waited for her to come pick the kids up, then I did um, something absolutely disgusting I, I i i drove my car in front of hers and i cut her car off i made a pull over i jumped into her vehicle and i said look we're going i said i can't do this anymore i said i lost you i've lost my um i've lost my kids now you're saying i can't see my kids again i'm back on the ice can you not see this i'm losing myself you have a responsibility for me because i'm your kid's father you know, you you you, you come from such a, a a beautiful family. You know, such a such a wealthy, beautiful family. Her mum was my high school science teacher, so mm. obviously they they hated my guts, man, from mm. the start. How did that feel, mate? Because there was a bit of this in your life. You yeah. know what I mean. You've been ostracised from being you know being a Muslim, and you, you meet a partner and her family. You know what I mean? Doesn't accept you, man. Like so it, it was. It was vice versa. My family didn't accept her because she was a white Australian girl, and and her family didn't accept me because I was Middle Eastern Muslim boy. You know, yeah. and and we kind of um together we kind of said a saying and we were like it's us against the world you know mm. like we are all we've got you know basically, and no one could understand me. My family, I you know like they. I was the only um, meth addict in my family, you know, mm. and I still am the only one that's had the problem with, with meth in my family. So no one could understand where I was or where I was coming from. And and um, I had already um, exhausted all avenues with my family. They knew what time it was when it came down to me asking for money or anything like that. They, they, they refused to enable me any longer. You grew up around domestic violence. And um, do you feel that you started to sort of act that way yourself? Um, look, at the time, um, look, by all means, I'm going to own my shit here, man. And um, yeah, well, they say, I, I grew up saying, um, learning that you are a product of your past or you're, you, it's the scientific fact that you are going to be just like your family or your dad was, you know, and it just gets passed down to you and stuff. Which you see, intergenerational transference. See, that's what it is. Um, see, I grew up about that and I was like, nah, surely that's not true. That's not a, that's not a fact because that's not me. Just because... I wasn't breaking my wife's nose like my did my dad did my mum, or just because I wasn't close fist punching my wife like my dad did my mum. You know, I I totally took 
total disregard to the fact that it was domestic violence. I didn't even think it was because it was always pushing, shoving, or or um, psychological abuse, you mm. know. And um, you know, it was open hand and stuff, and to areas of her body where it wouldn't, um, you know, knock her out or, or, or physically make her bleed or anything like that. So mm. to me, it wasn't domestic violence until I realised that it was. Yeah, today wow. I realised I did. I became a perpetrator of domestic violence. Wow, and and that, that realization. That realisation of that, man, how confronting was that? It's very confronting, um, especially when I was in custody. Um, I still do, till, um, still till today. I have um, traumatic nightmares about it still because I never got closure. I never got the opportunity to say sorry to her, you know, yeah. until now. Did you ever see your dad say, say sorry to your mum? Absolutely not. Mm. You uh, found yourself um, in back in prison? Yeah. What led you there? Um, what led me there was that incident that um, I jumped in her vehicle um, and, I, and I did what I did, but I jumped out of her car um, and I left. Mm. She um, she went to the police, obviously, um, and, and I... Did you blame her? Did you Absolutely blame her? Absolutely not. No, no way in the world, no. Mm. And I applaud her for that, you know, and... Mm. Fuck, sorry. Um, yeah. Now, I see, I see you, you're, you're, you're drawing emotion here, brother. That's powerful. That, don't hold back. Yeah, I'm no. back, man. I'm actually come with you. Yeah, so that they gave me bail, bro. Like mm. they gave me bail on deprivation, liberty, robbery with violence, assault. I was oblivious to any help that I could have to try and get my kids back. And the only thing I've ever known was that my dad took, you know, seven years fighting for us in custody and still lost. So I couldn't wait seven years, man. I had to react now, you know. Yeah, sure. So then they gave me bail and. It was the very first time in my whole entire life I've been put on a domestic violence order. So now, my, up for, for seven years, my daughter was seven and my son was five, um, close to six. And for that whole period, I've had my kids full time with, with their mother. And then all of a sudden, I've got a domestic violence order saying that I have to, I'm not allowed to be 100 metres near them or the kids. So I'm not allowed to have any contact. It's a non-contact order. Mm. So from there, I went very suicidal. Um, and I felt like I wasn't um, brave enough to actually to do it, you know. And um, so I, I, I had a, a, a zero fucks given attitude, you know, and, and, I, and I went on a rampage, a, a crime-fueled rampage. And what had happened then was I ended up turning those 10 charges into 153 charges and I got charged and um, I pled guilty to 153 charges. And what were those charges money consist of? Um, they consist of um, dangerous operation of motor vehicles, um, yeah, so just basically burglaries and, and just stealing hotties and and just unlawful entries and um, just all that sort of stuff, fraud. I uh, got pinched with uh, bullets and stuff and, um, yeah, so it accumulated. It's it's on Google, man. Like, I, I don't, I'm not, it's not, I'm not here to boast about it or anything like that. And the combination with the domestic violence stuff was tied in, not in your plea, yeah. you door that too. She tried to jump out of the car, see. Mm. Um, she, she, she tried to jump out of the car and, and I held onto the seatbelt and it left a mark on the right-hand side of her mm. neck from the whiplash because I mm. grabbed the seatbelt and pulled her back into the car. Yeah. And, and what happened then was they tried to pinch me with a strangulation charge mm. and I was like, no, I wasn't having it because that's mm. not how it went down because I'm one to own my shit yeah, yeah. and that's not how it went down. See, so I made a deal with the with the DPV, and I said to them that if they drop that one strangulation charge, I'll cop everything else on the chin, and they were so happy to take that deal, man. Because by the end of it, now after this whole time, I realised that they didn't have one print of mine in any of the houses. They only had the prints in the cars, all right? and the cars I could have got done for tainted property. But were you good for them? All that stuff that they charged you with. Um, there were some that I definitely wasn't good for, yeah. but I still put my hand up for it, man. So if, I, if, yeah. if 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 I'm getting charged with 150 charges, what's what's 153? You know? Yeah, for sure. I'm hearing you. So what was the outcome at court for that? Um, 
It ran under an act called the Totality Act. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah so what happens there was they, they, they just literally picked one charge, which was a head sentence. Um, it was, uh, bro, this is pathetic. It was uh, uh, unlawful entry with intent. Um, so I burg and I cop four years for it um, and everything else ran underneath it. Let's talk about this because the whole jail process was a big awakening for you, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, where did this awakening start to take place when you were in prison? Once once I hit that, that the jail, I thought, you know, like, this is it. You know, this is where I'm going to change my life and that. But, man, I was wrong, bro. That's where I started using, you know. That's when the real – I started shooting up, sharing needles and stuff bupe, like that. Yeah, using, I was yeah. using bupe. Bupamorphine is yeah. a heroin replacement. Yeah, so I, I was using that and that's I fell into that. and Hard jail when you're doing that. Yeah, because everyone would say it's a day out, you know, and mm. I was like, day out, you know, I wouldn't mind having a day out, you know, and then all of a sudden a day out led to, like, you know, having it as many times as I could in a day. And, it. Yeah, and then all of a sudden I'm sick and I'm feeling the real sickness is like I never imagined I could, you know, because you don't get that sickness mm. from ice, you know. Mm. All right, so what was it, mate? What was the turning point? After I did a while, I wasn't getting many letters, you know, and um, I wasn't receiving anything, and... um. What happened was I did a little while in, in custody. Um, after a few years, I got a letter from my dad, and by this stage, I'm 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 addicted, I'm addicted to the butte badly, and um and I I know I've got I know back then I had Hep C, you know I beat it today, thank God, and um and is that the letter you got now? Yeah, so this is the letter. I got Can you read it out? Would you yeah, mind yeah. reading it? I will. I'll read. I'll read it up to uh, up to a part where it um, mentions my dad's crimes. So mm. I just won't mention that, but I I will read the letter and um so the story behind this letter is that i got this letter in the mail and um and i read up to a certain point in this letter and and i stopped because i got really emotional you know and um and i stopped reading it so i put the letter away and then um a little while later i got a bus ticket up to maryborough correctional center and i'm sitting there in my cell and i'm like you know what i'm gonna read that i'm gonna read that letter you know um, so what did you didn't open it straight away no nah, i read the, i only read a few lines of the letter and yeah. then and i got really emotional you know it's, yeah. it's my first letter from my dad you know and um yeah. and so I got a bit emotional, so I put the letter away. So I got to the... I got well, to the well, just tell me this. I want to ask you, why would you put something away because it made you feel emotional? Bro, I was... um. And I couldn't, I couldn't open that box, bro, that Pandora's box that was deep down inside me, bro. Like... Oh, fuck. Like... Everyone needs their dad, you know? For sure. For sure, and that's all you ever wanted, mate, was a father figure? Yeah, bro, like, it's sad because, fuck, you know, like... When you started to read them, a draw a heap of emotion, maybe? Yeah, for, because, because you know, like... And in prison, you don't want to feel that, do you? Yeah, you don't man, want to like, show it. It's not the place to do it. But you know what? I just want to tell you something now. You're safe to, to yeah. feel it now, brother. Yeah, absolutely. You're safe here. Yeah. You're safe here, I'm, These are happy tears, man. Like, I've come such a long way, bro. And I, I, like, I'm proud to be where I'm from and, and proud of everything that I've done. I don't I don't have no regrets, you know. I do have a lot of remorse, but no regrets, you know. And, um, mm. and because if I didn't do everything that I did, how do I know how to treat my wife today, you know, my, my new wife today? And how can I ever be a good dad to my kids if, if I never was, a, uh, never was a neglected child, you know? And um, so I learned a lot from all of my lessons. So I'm really proud of everything that I've been through and um yeah so man at this time when I got this letter I needed my dad bro I was now I've gone from I lost my kids bro you know and I'm 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 I was an ice addict. My family wanted nothing to do with me. I'm in jail now. I'm shooting up, bro. I'm sharing needles, man. God, man, imagine my dad found this shit out. Like, mm. and anyway, so I cop this letter and what's it say? All right, so it goes, "Salam alaikum, son. How are you, Volkan? Sadly, find out you go to jail." Sadly find out you use some stuff, put you behind bars. Why, son, didn't you learn? Already, 
Now you do two years plus behind bars. If you don't learn and obey God, you'll belong to jail rest of your life. I'm in jail. I never done long time like you did. I do the crime, yes. I do few months and get out. But you, you lost your kids, your wife, your young years. Please. <coughs> sorry. Maybe sorry, brother. He goes, please, you know better. Stay clean. I'm in Maryborough Jail at, sev- at S7. I find out you in DU for dirty urine and you're using shit in jail. Wow, my son, please stop. And he goes, um, stop using shit in jail, my son. Please stop, repent, repent to God and start praying. Keep yourself clean. Your sentence, um, finish your sentence and come home, son. I'm begging God, I'm begging you, change, change now, change your friends, change change who offer drugs I need you in my life you my son he goes I always I always go to jail yes and they offer me drugs but I say no you can too when you sorry his handwriting is terrible and his English is even worse offer me drugs but I can say no you can too Um, you've done exactly what you doing before stop I know you've been in DU a few times I'm trying to get out on Supreme Court bail, inshallah. Come stay with me. Stay clean. Work. Take some responsibility, son. Make me proud. Get your kids. They need you. Imagine your kids. They don't know you. I don't know what to say anymore. We're not like them. Be strong. Please, Volkan. You don't get parole if you go, if the, you go the way you do, if the way you're going. You're doing wrong, son, my son. I love you. My heart hurts when I, when when you in there, son. Please don't hurt me. Stay clean. I'm, I'm trying to talk to you from this jail. So please try and make, um, please try and talk to me back. Make prayers, son, and don't share needles. You will get Hep C. You will be sick rest of your life. It's not worth it. Wow. At this point, I had already have already had Hep C. Yeah. yeah. How did that make you feel, man? Like that's heavy, <clears throat> bro. And I, I see it's how it's really like. I can only imagine it still impacts you now. I can only imagine how it impacted you then. Yeah, because you would have been vulnerable as all fuck. Oh, back I was then. vulnerable, man. You can only imagine, especially you know, um, a lot of uh, a lot of DU times. You know, running. I just want to clarify: DU means disciplinary unit, and it's the same as like a segregation unit. What it means is you go there for punishment because you've done something wrong within the jail, so you're isolated. Yeah. Man, that's heavy. It's really heavy. What he's doing there yes. is he's wanting to be your dad. Yeah, I know. And uh, but like, why now, man? Like, why now? When I'm already, I'm this age, bro. I'm 29 years old when I received this letter. Why now, bro? Mm. You know, like, it's too late now, mate. Like, I needed you when I was a kid. Man, wow, that's heavy, man. That's really heavy, eh? When you when you read that, did it give you some motivation to sort of to get clean? Yeah. So absolutely. Um. As you know, he said he was at Maryborough Correctional Centre. I just lobbed there. Yeah. So I just lobbed there. Didn't even know he was there. You um, went to S8 or something like that? I went to S8. Yeah, he was in S7. But by this point, by the time I got there... S8 is in Maryborough as a reception a reception unit. Yeah, so by the time I got um, to the jail, he'd already been in res, see? So when I read that, 
I was more inclined to just throw it away. I, it gave me, and I was like, you know what? I, had, I, was, I was already hanging out as well. I, I'd been off it for about two, three days, so I'm just coming a bit good, you know. Like my legs are still kicking a bit at night and that, but I was, um, I was just coming good, and I was like this is like my calling this is the time now that I can change I don't have a choice my dad's at res I'm, I've just put in a res app in and I'm going to res in a couple of days and as soon as I lob there bang I'm with my father I'm cutting laps with my own dad in jail man wow wow you know and how did that make you feel um, it was a massive wake up call man so for me it was like my whole life grew up getting told you're just like your father you're just like your father and I was like no I'm not I'm nothing like him you know I'm not nothing like that guy man you know and, and, and I didn't want to be either you know and, and um to actually be in the same jail as him, man, was a big fucking hard pill to it. swallow, man. And and I was like, I had a I had a really hard long long look at myself in the mirror, and I was like, man, do you want to be like that when you're 55 years old? Like, do you want to, you know, you want to still be doing this shit? If you have a look out there, that's you in the future, you know. And I was looking straight at me in the future, man, and I had no choice. I had to change, bro. Did that scare you into change? It petrified me, bro, because I was like, I'm already in the mix of going to court for my kids, man. I'm trying my best to get some sort of visitation, bro, and 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 I just knew that something had to give, man. Like I had to break the chain, bro. If I didn't, if I just didn't give a fuck anymore, I would have just kept going, doing what I'm doing, kept ending up like him and become just like him then my son if he doesn't give a fuck he grows up to be just like me and then his son and then it just doesn't ever end yeah the breaking the cycle yeah. you had to break that cycle i want to break that cycle now and i've realized what it takes man and 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 that's why i appreciate being neglected i appreciate all of that because now i can break the cycle man i've learned i learned so much from being affected as a child and growing up and being affected you know psychologically and mentally and and really just all that sort of stuff taught me how to be a good dad to my kids today, you know, and it's mad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, what was the communication like with, between you and your dad whilst you're there at the prison? Did, we just, did you develop a stronger relationship? Yeah, we did, man. We developed a really, really, really strong relationship. Um, like in there, man, as you know, you, you meet them, you meet someone and you know their raw selves, you know, like their real selves, you know, like in there, there's, you can't you can't hide or, or, or you can't, um, put you a can't fake yeah, it. you can't put a mask on or a demeanor. That's you, man. Like mm. I, I see you when you wake up, and I see you before you go to bed, and you know, like this is the raw. Did you live in the same unit as him? Nah, not no. that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. You have a, a dad that was, you know, obviously not a great role model to you when you were young. Mm. You know, he was involved in crime and and domestic violence. Now he's trying to give you advice on how to straighten your life up. How did you how did you deal with that? As a grown-ass man, I, I, c- I can see that and I can appreciate that. You know, as a grown-up, I can appreciate that because um, there's things that I understand today that I never understood as a kid, you know, and today I can understand that every father has, has a demeanour that they put on, you know, and they have their own personal bullshit that they go through in life, and but then they still put that father mask on, you know, and they've got to put that mask on and be a dad too sometimes, you know, so... What was, he, what was his relationship with his father like? Oh man, if, bro, my dad. My dad's life has been very, very hard. He never had a dad. His dad died when he was thirteen years old. His his mum passed away, you know, at, at a very young age, at like when he was eight years old, man. So this, my so he dad been was the a, father. He was orphaned, man, by thirteen, you know. So he's been the father to you that he his father was to him, basically. Yeah, that's all he knew, man. Yeah, especially distant. in the villages of Turkey, you know, growing up in Turkey yeah. and living in there and yeah, old school ways, you know. All right, I'll let move on now. So you, you're getting out of prison. Yeah. How, were you, how, how clean were you when you were getting out of prison? Very clean, man. About nine months. Yeah. yeah it was about nine months clean, but I had, I had 100% willpower 
that um, I wasn't going to use meth again. When you talk about your clean time, you put a big smile on your face, yeah. like, you know, something that you're really, really proud of. And um, what's that all about? Man. <laughs> Sorry, bro. You're going to make me emotional again. Fuck. I'm all over the shop. Um, bro, it's a massive achievement for me, man. You know, as a, as a kid, I never ever got even, not even one student of the week, you know. And, mm. and this is something that, you know, I know I stuffed my life up and, and it might not mean anything to anyone else, but to me, man, it means the world. Like, I've come out of a really dark place and, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm in a really, really good place today, you know. You're winning, buddy. Yeah. See, what that smile is about is the smile, is, that's the smile of a winner. Yeah. That's what it is. Because yeah. I, I know, because I'm, I'm winning. Yeah. And I know that smile because, you know, it takes one to know one. And, and you're winning, and it feels good when you're winning. Absolutely. It feels good when you're succeeding, and it feels good when you've got substance. It feels good when you're within and you, you're liking yourself, when, when you're creating self-worth and you're liking who you are instead of hating who you are. Yeah. So my whole adult life, like from age of 17, 18, I've only been 50 kilos, man. And, and once I give the drugs up, I, I stack the weight on it. So today everyone's like, bro, stop looking at yourself, bro, in the mirror, you know. I'm like, I'm like but I don't even recognise this guy. Look at him, bro. Like, I look sharp, you know. Like, I, take, I take pride in my appearance today. Like I, I feel as if I try to make myself look good because I've, I've realised that as soon as I get a haircut or I, I start looking good, I, I, good, I feel good, man, you know, and I feel Same. amazing. And I, I'm sitting on 90 kilos today and I, I feel amazing. Amazing! I'm a totally whole different human, bro, and it's it's a good thing. Yeah, and there's some there's self love, man. Yeah, self love's a good thing. So, how is your relationship with your kids? And are you the father that you've always wanted your dad to be to you? The absence that I had from my children's lives was five years, man. So I never got to see them um, for five years. So from seven, they were seven years old and five years old, mm. to now they're eleven years old and ten years old. You know, and mm. and I got out, man, and um. Obviously, I started smashing out my goals, you know, because I went to rehab. As soon as I got what out, what rehab did you go to? I went to TRS, Townsville Recovery Service. Okay, I've man. heard about this. Yeah, yeah, massive, massive shout out to them. That they're amazing people, and they are, it's a really they take a lot of blokes from jail, don't they? Bro, they are, they are cool, man. It's like a place to be, you know. And what I was really, really scared about was going there, was because that was my parole address. I kept getting knocked back mm. to everywhere else, you know. And I thought I was going to do full time. Lucky I didn't, because I needed to go to rehab. Mm. Well, I've done the same. I put myself in a rehab at four years clean. Oh wow. Because I needed to get, learn, I, I, for me, I needed to get living skills. I just, yeah, you know, it I teaches need, you all that good yeah. stuff, man. And so, whilst I was there, on my way there, I was like, parole's fucked up here because what's going to happen here is this. I'm going to go to rehab. There's going to be a secret syndicate of users, and they're going to have all these. Um, they're going to have all these bodgy urines and fake. Well, bodgy urines. I mean, fake urine, and they're going to. Um, they're, they're going to find all these. Um, these these loopholes, and they're going to find all these ways of using drugs and getting away with it. And I'm never going to get better, man. Because here I am. I'm going to step into this mm. this world of um, this. That's syndicate. trauma, brother. Can I tell you something? That what you were going through there is a classic trauma. Is it self sabotage? Yeah. That's a classic, that's a, you really articulated well, that was a classic case of fucking self-sabotage, and that's what, uh, what people who face serious trauma do, we self-sabotage, we don't want it to be real, mm. we don't want to go on and get a better life, mm. so we self-sabotage, we go into that sort of thinking, we try to pull it apart before it even happens. Yeah, so then, but when I got there, man, I, I, was, I, was, um, I was really lucky to see that. I ended up in a house by myself, um, in a four-bedroom house by myself on the property, mm. and and at that moment I realised, hang on a second, I'm the first one in here, so that means I make the rules in here. So then, whenever everyone came in, I was laying the rules down. I was like, oi, 
if you've got the wrong intentions here, fuck off, you know, fuck off now. We'll meet, Good, we'll have healthy crack, boundaries man. from yeah. the start. Set the boundaries straight away, man. And I, and I, and I laid them rules out and, and everyone that came in was such a positive vibe, you know, and it was just, it was just boom, boom, boom. And it was a beautiful thing, man. And, and I graduated after three months. How did it make you feel like graduating there, you know? How did it make you feel like, because here you are, you're getting on a roll, you're getting clean, you're feeling good about being clean, you're doing a program. Mm. You know, you, you graduate, you're winning. You're just getting in this, you're getting it, you're creating healthy habits of winning. Yeah, absolutely, bro. And that's, and that's exactly what was happening, man. And I felt just such a massive sense of achievement. And you know what, like I say, like, when when someone's gone through something, their, their fuel tank can run a bit low. But then once you once you smash a goal out, or, or someone gives you an encouragement, or some sort of a, respects what you've done, or, or, or compliments you on something, right? It fills your tank back up, and yeah. you just want to keep going. It motivates you to keep going. Yeah, see? Yeah. So this was what it was like for me. So once I, I, I graduated from rehab, I had all this energy just to want to smash it all out, man. So I got out. I went straight back to mum's. I started smashing goals out, man. So got a job straight away. Um, kept myself busy. I was working far away from my mum's house, coming home late at night, like around seven o'clock at night, going at like five in the morning to work, coming back at seven, exhausted. And you know what? The most, the first time ever I've sat at mum's house and I'm like, wow, I have no warrants today. I know the cops, they don't want me. I didn't use drugs today and I'm exhausted and I can now have a sleep and not wig out and, or think that the cops are going to kick mumsy's door down and, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, so... Um, that was good feeling. It was brother, like a safe mate. haven for me, you know. But that's how's that for me? That's a sense of f- freedom. Mm. That's the ultimate freedom. Yeah, the ultimate peace. Yeah, and I think for me in all my life, I've strived for peace. Yeah, and here it is. It's sitting in your lap, mate. Yeah. You achieved it because you're winning. Yeah, and, and and all I had to do, man, was um, I had to make myself available for these goals to come to me. You know, like I was I was out there chasing my goals and my dreams, of course. But once I like I got a job. Man, there comes the money. Now now I've got clean money. I, I saved a bit of that money. I bought myself my first car, man. I bought myself a 2002 BMW, bro, mm. for like two and a half grand. I saved mm. up. Yeah. Got, it, got it in like three weeks. Yeah. So I've got a license for the first time. I, I, I got my license. Now I'm driving around in a Beamer, bro. Like, I know it's an old school one, but yeah. for me, it was it was fucking yeah, mad, you know? Man. It was my whip. I see this joy. I see this really nice joy. It's contagious. I yeah. see this really joy. When you real a sense of pride, and it's really, it's really nice to see, brother. Yeah, man. Yeah. I earned that stuff, you know? And and I did it, you know, with, with me and, and God by my side, and, and I did that, you know. And and then one thing led to another, bro. A big shout out to my to my little brother too, man. If I can, please, like, um, he's what's his, his name, bro? His, his name's his name's Emra, and and he owns a clothing brand called Teflon Co. You know, my young, young, my young bloke asked me about it yesterday. Oh, so that's my little brother, right? So yeah. big shout out to Teflon and that, and um, so. He's been a massive inspiration in my life, bro. He's someone that I look up to, and that's my baby brother, you know. And um, for me to get out, it's very, very hard to get out of that lifestyle, man, especially when you get out of jail and you just go straight back to the hood, you know, straight back to the same neighbourhood where all your triggers are, you know, where all the dealers are, you know, where every junkie on the street is, you know it all. Best place to do it, though, brother, if it's going to get tested. So then what happened was my little brother, he in his circle of friends, and they're all successful people, right, he had grabbed me and he goes, bruh, come here, you're in with us now. And you know what? Methamphetamines isn't accepted in this circle. And I was like, mad, this is sick. And they're taking me to restaurants and, and these guys are dressing up in fancy, nice clothing. And I was like, I want some of that. I want to live like that. 
they're not crackheads. I want to live like that. So then I started, you know, I feel sorry for some people, man, that I've left behind, you know, in that drug scene because some of them get out of jail and they don't have any solid friends that can be like, come here, bro, just like I did, you know. So mm. it's very, it's, it'll be way more harder, man, for them mm. to do it on their own, bro, than to do it how I did it. I had a lot of support, you know. Mm. It takes, what does it take? It takes a village to raise a child. Oh, so yeah, they say, and it takes, you know, it takes a good crew to, you know, to help you stay. I can't, we can. This is the mm. approach I've wow. sort of taken in. That's a good one. I like that. I'm going to use that for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I can't, we can. And I've been blessed myself. Yeah. You know, I've had good people that have reached out to me and, and, and helped me get clean. But you know what? I, I'm just saying that to the person or the, the bloke or, or woman getting out of jail. Man, go, I'm a big believer in just go and sit in NA meetings until you get something. Absolutely. Just go there and don't even you don't even have to talk. Just listen because nine times out of ten, you're going to hear someone else tell your story, man, and, and you're going to end up getting the courage to then talk, you know, and that's what happened with me. So I was... Um, smashing out my goals and that and I was, I was approached by such a successful group of people and they were helping me out I was working full time I've got my car on that and and my brother sees how much effort I'm putting into this now anyways come my birthday November last year I cop a message on messenger and it's my ex-wife Man, I ain't had any contact or closure, mind you, which I really needed was to apologise to her I was like man, she's trying to put me back in jail like imagine if I she's messaged me and she's and she said this great long message man about um about how um i see the way you're fighting me in court um i can tell that you really want to have your kids in your life and i've been looking at some of your photos and some of you, some of your stuff that you've been posting on instagram and stuff like that and i can see that you are ready to see your kids again and that you are in a better place yeah. <laughs> bro we settled it outside of court I got the opportunity to sit with her at a coffee shop and I cried to her, man. I said how sorry I was, you know. Like, it was, Let's go. It was, <laughs> it was mad, bro. Mm. Word. And, um, and the opportunity to see, and to see my kids, bro, after five years, you know, mm. and to sit you down. You got me now. Yeah, thank you, my mm. big brother. I appreciate you, eh? Thank you. And, you know, like, I was, I met up at a park. Um, this one's really emotional for me, bro. So it's the first time, you know, I've seen my kids in five years. They're coming to the park to see me. I get a phone call, you know, and um, I've already met the mother at a coffee shop the day before and she's, I've got to apologise and, and, and really um, say sorry to her, you know, and she forgave me and, you know, she was man enough to, um, she was woman enough to, to apologise back to me for her wrongs as well, you know, and um, so the next day I'm sitting at the park anyways, I'm waiting for them to come and she give me a call and she goes, um, listen, I've got the kids with me, we're coming to see you, but your daughter's not going to talk to you no matter what, she doesn't want to talk to you. And I said, that's fine. I said, that's, that's absolutely fine. As long as she can come, you know, and she can just listen to me, you know. Maybe if she just listens, she doesn't have to talk, you know. And so they came, she came, and they, they came, and my son was excited. He's seen me and that. And we sat down, and I got to apologise, you know, and I got to say how sorry I was. Anyways, as I'm doing, I was crying. I started crying, you know. And when I started crying after I apologised to my kids, who was the first person to stand up, man, and give me a, cu a cuddle? my daughter the mm. one that said she was not going to talk to me but mm. she was the first one to come and give me a cuddle and she's like i forgive you dad you know and it went from there but after that they were calling me vulcan for a bit for like two days and, I, and you know what i said to him i said here i said listen i said i i want to tell you guys something i said the name dad has to be earned you know yeah wow <clears throat> so I, I earned that name dad you know mm. and today they call me dad <laughs> so that? yeah so i earned it wow yeah. Oh man, this is a powerful one. This one, yep. uh, mate, brother, 
How long have you been clean for now? I've been clean for 508 days today, man. A day at a time. One day at a time, bro, yeah. Congratulations, mate. An amazing achievement. Thank amazing. you. Amazing. <clears throat> amazing, powerful story. And um, let me tell anyone listening to this, if this don't draw a tear to your eyes, nothing will. Uh, mate, just um, what an amazing story. What an amazing journey. And, um, mate, I know you just want to touch quickly on, on your passion for recovery and helping everyone, you know. That's what attracted me to you, you know. I was drawn to your enthusiasm and that on TikTok and just your yeah. passion and your drive. And, man, you make, you make recovery look sexy, brother. Yeah, thank you, bro. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Bro. That's bad. Um, yeah, man, on TikTok I'm known as um, streetking.1. Um I love I love um, portraying such a positive image. See, like I, I I put out one one video and and I went live for a little bit and the amount of attention that it got, the amount of people that I reached and I, and what had happened was I copped a message, bro, and it said you've saved my life tonight. I was like, wow. And you know what? Those messages have just been flooding through now, man. And the amount of people I'm helping with what I'm doing, bro, it's my calling, man. And and I'm here to just to, if I don't speak about my past and if I don't speak about how I got out of the hole, I feel selfish. Yeah. Um, there's a lot can't of keep it. You can't keep it unless you give it away, brother. Absolutely, man. And, and there's a lot of people still stuck in that hole, man. And um, and there's a lot of us influencers that are out there and um, that, are, that are doing this, man. And, and so, like, th- there is ways out. And you know what I figured out now? That, like, these days, there's a way out with without hitting rock bottom there's a lot of men like such as yourself that we looked up to as youth you know and we looked up to men like you throughout our life of crime and and today we look up to you through our life of recovery man and you guys have have paved the way for people like us to come and sit in recovery comfortable you know yeah it's important and it's important that there is people out there with a positive message i'll tell you you you've got this vibrant vibrancy about you and everything like and 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 when i'll tell you what i was never going to get clean if recovery wasn't fun and I, a bloke come into Parramatta jail and done an na meeting and he told me he'd be on a bar that night he'd be dancing mostly have his pants off and he, and he said i won't have a drug or drink in me and i went bullshit and i just couldn't believe it <laughs> and his mate jumped in and he goes he done it last week mate he done it last week and he and he showed and he, and he this bloke was just the most funniest guy his name's hawkeye his name's a his name's greg richards hawkeye owns a resort and um Barley now, but just an amazing guy, and so many people got clean off the back of his sense of humour and his love for life. You know, and I think mm. you portray that. You know, and you've got that same thing going on. You'll 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 walk a lot of people into yeah, recovery, into a better life. Thank you, bro. There's Mate. a lot of fun things to do, man. Now nowadays, you know, and rather than just crawling on the floor looking for fucking rock on the floor or looking at your people, for the beat, so looking know, for the invisible yeah, bugs man, or and all that sort of stuff, man. Like, come on, man, doesn't it get tiring? Let go of it, man. You know, you deal with your tired. pain, deal yeah. with your trauma, and get on with it. Yeah, life is beautiful. You know, life is beautiful, and yeah. So I just want to do a big shout out to um, 21 fathers. Um, unfortunately, 21 fathers in Australia commit suicide every single week because of restricted access to their children. Um, and I feel as if I changed that statistic because in that one week of 2017, only 20 fathers died and, and I survived, you know, and, and, you know, and, and I just wanted to um, let people know that there is so much help out there, you know, in regards to trying to get access to your children. Um, you just got to just Google it, man. We have we have enough help now and, and we don't, you know, we, there's things that are being put into place for us men to be able to um, to, to do to to, get, to gain access to our children. Don't suffer in silence. Reach out. Yeah, reach out, man. Absolutely. Vulcan, awesome having you here, brother. Thank That's you. a beautiful, amazing, inspirational story. Thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate your time.